but we can see it happening around us. Like we can see the impacts happening around us. And, and this again was borne out in the survey that big shift in the number of people who say they're concerned about the, the risks of sort of extreme heat events, heat waves and droughts. And that's also interesting in a country like ours because we've got a pretty well established mythology almost around weather. Welcome to another acclimatised conversation on climate change adaptation, the show that picks the brains of some of the leading thinkers about climate change risk and resilience. I'm Lydia and today I'm speaking to Dr Adam Corner from Climate Outreach to find out more about their work on communicating climate change and public engagement. Climate Outreach are a team of social scientists and communication specialists working to increase public engagement with climate change. They work at the interface of research and practice and help organisations to communicate climate change in ways that resonate with the values of their audiences. So in ways that appeal to the different interests and beliefs of different groups of people. At the beginning of March, Climate Outreach and Cardiff University released research findings and a set of recommendations for engaging the UK public on climate risks and adaptation actions. Acclimatizer's very own Will Bugler was part of the Stakeholder Advisory Board for the research design, and the results have revealed that there has been a huge shift in public perceptions of climate change risks and adaptation. Back in November 2019, just before the UK general election, over 1,000 members of the public were surveyed about their concerns in climate change. When asked about the biggest issues facing the country in the next 20 years, climate change came only second to Brexit, and 23% of respondents actually listed climate change as the most important issue. It's important to know that this research was conducted in the UK back in November 2019, so before the outbreaks of COVID-19 had been reported. Indeed, the rest of this podcast was recorded at the beginning of March, before the UK had really started upping the efforts to curb the crisis. Whilst the situation relating to the virus changes daily, and we're all still working out what this means for climate adaptation and resilience, it's incredibly useful to know where the public perceptions about climate change were at. This can help inform how we now develop sensitive conversations about climate change in the context of a global pandemic, because unfortunately, climate change isn't going away. As we discuss later on in this podcast, the way in which we talk about these things really makes a difference to how we respond and have hope. So I went and spoke to Adam to find out more about the implications of these research findings and what he thinks this means for communicating climate change. Adam, thanks so much for speaking to us this week. Um, Would you like to start with introducing yourself to our listeners? Yeah, hi Liz, yeah. Hi hi listeners, hi podcast listeners. I'm I'm Adam Corner, I'm the Director of Research at Climate Outreach and Climate Outreach is a a charity that specialises in public engagement with climate change and we specifically work to be a bridge between 
research, social research, um, and, and climate communication practice. Uh, and, and, and do a lot of social research ourselves, but also do a lot of work in partnership with academics too. And so last week you launched something pretty exciting. Yeah, it was exciting actually. So we launched last week uh, a new a new survey of of public opinion, so a national national survey of public opinion on climate change and climate impacts and climate risks and resilience and adaptation specifically. So this was this was the end of a, a year long project, um, which was a collaboration with the, the team at Cardiff University, the Understanding Risk team at Cardiff University, who do loads of work on how people think about the risks of different issues. So, you know, climate change, but different technologies as well. And we launched the findings of the survey last week at a, at a little bash at the Royal Society. And we also, as well as the survey findings, put out a report which was basically a, a briefing for, for, for UK communicators. So that could be um, campaigners, it could be policymakers, um, could be educators, could be folks working to engage you know, the public or working to engage mm-hmm. businesses. Um, but but we're really pulling out from the survey what the sort of implications are for engaging the, the, the public um, and non-specialist audiences on on climate risks and adaptation. And that's that's the kind of thing that we do quite a lot of. We, we put together resources that, as I said, sort of bridge that gap between research and practice. So drawing on the survey findings, but also really sort of embedding those findings in what we already knew about about public engagement and, and, and how to communicate effectively on climate change. And so one of the key findings from the research was that public engagement with climate change in the UK is pretty high at the moment, that it was second only to Brexit as a concern. Is that right? Yeah. So there were some there were some really big shifts in there. So the Cardiff the Cardiff team has been carrying out surveys like this or 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 certainly containing, you know, some of the same items over quite a few years. And we we did some comparisons specifically looking back to 2016 and comparing that with the with the survey data from 2019. And we saw some some really big shifts in there. And, and it's it's mm. kind of worth saying that you don't with this kind of research, you don't necessarily see big jumps all that often. Um, and mm. one of the big jumps was that uh, climate change. When we the first question that we asked people on the survey before they'd read anything else and unprompted was, "What you know? What do you think is the biggest, the most important issues facing the country over the next twenty years?" Um, and in two thousand sixteen, climate change came right down the list, somewhere like thirteen, mm. um, you know, basically nowhere. Um, and in in two thousand nineteen, it came second on the list, only to Brexit, as you say. And that's quite that's quite a big shift. And I guess that is a huge shift. Yeah. <laughs> In some ways, it's one of those. It's one of those interesting points where I think, in a way, you, most people probably don't need a survey to, to tell them or to to reinforce that idea that there's something has shifted on climate change over the last you know year, year and a half. We've you know we've seen major, major protests and upheavals from extinction, mm. from school strikes, really importantly as well, um, and we've seen you know big policy shifts around moving to to net zero. But I think, you know really what's happened and it, it's it's there in this acknowledgement and recognition of the, that there's a climate emergency um and, and there is a crisis and, and it is urgent um, and we see this in the survey as well by the way like there's there's, there's mm. the majority of people agree that, that that this you know warrants being called a, a climate emergency but we can see it happening around us like we can see the impacts happening around us and and this again was borne out in the survey that 
big shift in the number of people who say they're concerned about the the risks of sort of extreme heat events, heat waves and droughts. Um, and that's also interesting in a country like, um, like ours because we've got a pretty well-established mythology almost around, around <laughs> weather. You know, mm, yes. is, is the thing that people worry about is, is, is too much water generally, not, not having not enough water. And if anything, we celebrate a heat wave and, you know, newspapers yeah. with images of people frolicking in fountains and messing around on the beach and having a lovely time. <laughs> and, and yeah, you know, like we all do enjoy those things as well, but at the, at what's happening alongside um, those things in, in, you know, in our country and other countries now, as the, as the, as the, as the temperature rises and those extreme heat events become more extreme um, and the edges of them become more dangerous mm. is that alongside the enjoyable bits, there's clearly risks too. you know, people mm. working in cities, our infrastructure, um, impacts on health, vulnerable populations, elderly and, 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 and the very young. And for the first time, I think we're seeing, we're seeing high levels of concern about heat events alongside mm. high levels of concern about flooding, which, which we're also seeing around us at the moment. So yeah, it's like we get both extremes is the, is the challenge of climate change, more of all of it. Um, and, and that's, that's kind of finally coming through in the public attitudes data, which is interesting. It's really interesting that you you speak about that people are beginning to identify that they are actually experiencing the impacts of climate change. You know that there isn't that this heightened public awareness and concern isn't maybe just because there's been lots of um, you know school struck for climate and extinction rebellion. In fact, I was really interested to see in the survey that people's response towards those sorts of um, sort of advocacy groups was quite. It was quite mixed and yet there still was quite a high climate concern why do you think that was yeah well because i think there's a there's a kind of mosaic um of of, of things all coming together at once and 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 those protests have certainly rung an alarm bell um and and generally the picture that you see not just from this survey but from other recent polling data as well is that um people sort of support the the ends but not necessarily the mm. um means of of direct action and that's you know that's to be expected like not not everyone is is a fan of of kind of radical protest although i you know i i i, I don't I, I think i think many people were pleasantly surprised in the climate movement at how at how well at least those those initial extinction rebellion protests landed mm. how much momentum there seemed to be around them and you know i think we should all say sort of hats off to to them and the school strikers for for really picking up the the, the the button and 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 running with it and 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 banging that drum for the urgency of of, of climate change which is which is it's been urgent for a long time it hasn't just become urgent um but but this mm. this current wave of protest has maybe followed the scientific stepping up of that rhetoric as well from the UCC mm-hmm. report you could see it in there too um and and I think it's now just um you know we we're unambiguously seeing with our own eyes experiencing ourselves climate impacts for many people and this is why the heat the heat perceptions question is interesting because whilst floods are sort of devastating and you know cause, mm. cause damage and we've seen you know in this this winter how horrible that can be some communities have been hit multiple times in south wales and hepton bridge and you know yeah. but it's pockets of the country so you could quite easily 
be just going about your 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 your, your daily kind of business and and have no idea that places were yeah. really except that you see it on the news um it just doesn't really affect you in the same way whereas if there's a heat wave that sweeps the country um you do get impacted by it so there's that kind of shared common currency mm. i think in, in how we experience heat that is something a bit different and in terms of public engagement that that does open almost like a new a new sort of front for talking to people about climate change there's there's a shared point of reference to start from with people um and 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 and, and, and even though perhaps heat heat impacts are not quite as dramatic um it, or they don't seem as dramatic as as flooding events you know there are serious there are serious consequences from them as well we've seen spike spike in death rates with the with the last two european yeah rates. you know they're not they, they they do matter and maybe i think the story that we're telling ourselves about about heat waves is starting to change in this country and and that's right i think because it is part of of what um climate change means for the uk yeah and i mean like just kind of sort of culturally for brits to have a heat wave as you said that would be something that would be celebrated but i wonder how much the fact that we are now you know, as a as a country concerned about climate change, and that has been in part due to our experience of heat waves. How much of that sort of connection is because we know climate change means a warmer world, and therefore we're connecting that to a warmer weather. Whereas for flooding, it's not maybe necessarily as easily identifiable that it's as an impact of climate change. Do you think those sorts of perceptions about what it is climate change brings then when it does come as like a, as a warmer sensation that that is more identifiable by folk do you think that plays anything in it yeah i mean in yeah in some ways it, it's almost like the signature the signature of of global yeah. warming climate change is is rising temperatures it's the fundamental aspect of it so when that's sort of um, represented in your in your region in your country, it should be straightforward to join those dots. And I know that in the past, and this feels, you know, things move quickly, and this now feels like a long time ago, or maybe not for in some places. <laughs> I guess I guess Trump and other various other voices would still say things like this. But you know, it feels like a long time ago that in this country, our own Prime Minister um, Boris Johnson, our Prime Minister now, was writing columns for the telegraph mm. kind of it's it's snowing outside um there's no such thing as climate change or we don't need to be worried about <laughs> it and that all feels um well it felt ridiculous at the time but it certainly feels ridiculous now um and but there was that tension right that we had to mm. somehow say uh you know it's still going to be cold you know even though the, the world is warming up and i think that's still with us now like we may not i mean i guess we have to hope we don't because of all the because we are trying to fix this problem, not just watch it happen as, as it goes along. Like we have to hope that every summer isn't hotter than the last for eternity um, mm. and don't keep breaking heat wave records and we don't keep seeing spikes in deaths. I mean, some of it, some of it is going to get worse. And this is, why the, this is why the resilience and the adaptation piece is so important because it, it isn't just about sitting back and throwing up your hands and going, well, it's happening, so we might as well get used to it. It's about, it's about protecting you know, the vulnerable populations. It's about our, our health and our well-being, and it's about saving lives ultimately um, with, with adaptation policies. Yeah, and I suppose so, this has kind of maybe been the criticism of some of climate change communications to date, in that um, 
you know, if we talk about adaptation and resilience, it sounds as though we've given up on mitigation activities or that if we just talk about mitigation, that we're not alive to the very real issues and the impacts of climate change that are happening now. And so with this sort of new public engagement or like, you know, people are actually identifying impacts that are happening to them in the UK, uh, that they are, you know, that are making them more concerned about climate change. Do you think this changes the landscape now that we communicate climate change in? And sort of what does that mean for talking about adaptation and resilience? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think it's really important. And this has always been the case. Uh, it's hard. It's hard maybe for any given you know project or any given communicator to always do this. But it's really important to try and tell the full story, I think, of climate mm. change. Like what's what's causing it um what are the you know the, the consequences and the impacts and the effects what are the solutions but also how do we how do we deal with the stuff that we can't make go away now and i think i think the more that we can keep those pieces of the puzzle together the better it's interesting that they haven't always been kept together um mm. and i you can see that at the highest level um whether that's kind of scientific distinctions between working groups that, that focus on different elements of, of climate change or the uk government's sort of distinction with, with with defra and bays where different parts of climate change impacts and mitigation happen and i and i i get it that you need to kind of divide things up and and, and, and tackle them in a in a in a way that is is achievable um but you know this this the, the idea that we wouldn't um, want to talk about resilience and we wouldn't want to talk about changes that we can make to our communities, to our infrastructure that will form part of our response to climate change, um, I think is rapidly becoming out, outdated mm. if, if it ever made sense in the first place. I mean, when you go back, you know, sort of go back to almost the very beginning of climate change communication and there was this at the time, you know, several decades now, at the time, this very sort of abstract ephemeral issue that we that scientists were already pretty confident about actually like a lot of the basics were there mm -hmm. but how the hell did you explain this to people you, you literally can't couldn't see it or touch it or feel it um and you know the, the, the this idea of like the psychological distance of climate change mm -hmm. i mean i think 20 years ago that's very valid you know it was very hard to join the dots between this this abstract notion of of a blanket of of of, of, of gases mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know what that meant for your lives and so there was a lot of showing polar bears on melting ice and things like that and that that made complete sense because we needed um a tangible kind of icon that would represent climate change and you know as the years have gone by and it's become more obvious what's happening and we sadly can now see the impacts around us everywhere we see people being mm -hmm. impacted and we see positive stories but you know not enough yet um it's become more and more possible to visually represent climate change mm. with, with, by, by telling human stories and showing people around us like how we're being impacted by how we're dealing with responding to climate change what the causes are um and i think that's just got to be reflected in our in our in our communication overall you know like we can it's we can totally situate this story now um in our in our near term in our day-to-day -day lives and again in the the recent survey data um it, it it was clear that people again had been a shift and this is a long-term shift and it's going and continues in the right direction but that more and more people were acknowledging and agreeing that yes this is a problem for, mm. for 
for the now, you know, for, um, that's happening now, not in 25 years' time. Um, so that, that psychological distance has narrowed and arguably, um, you know, we're getting to the point, finally, we probably should have been here, we definitely should have been here, like, you know, 10, 15 years ago, where you can, you can, you can, you can assume that people know, at least in, in, in a general sense, like what you mean when you say, when you want to talk about climate change and, mm-hmm. and roughly the kind of set of ideas that it represents. But it's a very kind of bare minimum starting point, I think, that we've got to. Like the depth of engagement, I would argue, and I think there's evidence for this, is still pretty, pretty shallow. Mm, yeah, and then encouraging a greater depth of engagement can be quite tricky because you know, as climate change communicators, like we know just scaring people or, you know, creating a fear around climate change can actually be really um, distancing for people, you know, to engage with with that sort of fear is, is quite hard. And yet when you are experiencing more of the impacts and this psychological distancing is becoming less distant, um, that that fear and sort of um, scary parts of climate change are coming closer to home. And, you know, we've seen more articles and, and things coming out about people experiencing climate anxiety and, you know, stories of hearing um, children who are really concerned about the future and what it means for them. And so I suppose, you know, we also know then that when we talk about behaviour change and motivating people to take action on climate change, hope is a really important aspect um, and creating sort of real hope rather than hollow or shallow hope. Now, these are all like really hard terms and concepts to actually nail down as to what it is they mean in practice. But do you think that there is something different now in the context that we're experiencing with public perception about climate change that means that we can create different hopeful narratives you know if the fear is closer to home do you think there's a chance that we can have a hope that's closer to home too yeah and we we absolutely have to and need to i think it's a really good question in a way of putting it i mean i think it's it's you know it's so it's so sad and upsetting that that we have got to a point where and maybe it was always going to come but you know we've got to a point where Lots of children and young people and and not only feeling like there's a kind of burden on them that that hasn't Mm. been, hasn't been met by previous generations or, or, or older people. And I think, I think they're right. Um, but I feel, yeah, feeling this kind of deep, deep existential anxiety about their future. And, and I think many, many people who, who have engaged with climate change have that same feeling. I mean, I certainly dip in and out of it myself and yeah keeping busy on on working on a specific mm-hmm. part of climate change is a you know for me is a good way to to mm-hmm. help with like it really does speak i think to your question around yeah what do we do with this with this with this bundle of emotions that climate change justifiably causes and i think you know people should be scared like on one level like we should be worried yeah. Yeah. um this is real and it's the biggest challenge that we've collectively ever faced there's no there's nothing to be gained by downplaying how serious climate change is at all but we've, but as much as we've got a responsibility to be honest with people, and this is kind of the responsibility that I guess comes through in the tell the truth sort of slogan of Extinction Rebellion, there's, a, there's, there's, there's absolutely a responsibility there and for governments to tell the truth as well. But there's also a responsibility to not um, paralyze ourselves into inaction because mm. like, what are we trying to do? Like the, 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 the ringing the alarm bell 
is 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 important because it's because it's justified but we we're ringing it because we want something to happen we want emissions we want to we want to you know get the emissions curve down we want to implement um changes to our society that we're all on board with um that you know that fit with our collective sense of where we're going who we want to be but that make sense in a in a carbon constrained world and a and a climate impacted world mm-hmm. um so we we also have to as you say give give find find ways to, to communicate meaningful constructive hope and i think this hope word is a it's a funny one and and i think like has has articulated in lots of eloquent ways um what hope means and you know she sort of says it it's not something that's like abstract and out there that you can tap into it comes from acting it comes from taking meaningful action and 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 i think uh, the distinction i always kind of try and draw is that um it's not that we need a balance between um scaring people and making people feel much happier and more reassured about it all in the end so that we all kind of go back to sleep again that that's not useful <laughs> no <laughs> things is not useful and greenwashing things is not useful no but but when we say positive what we mean by like a positive story is a is constructive something that is tangible something that can build that sense of efficacy mm. what i do makes a difference what we collectively do makes a difference um and yeah like we have to be kept like somewhere in that in that balance is is the right place to be but we do need to it is a conscious thing i think that we need to maintain in our in our communication strategies for for ourselves because in the in the recent survey data what we saw is that people who are kind of on the left of the political spectrum who generally care say they care more about climate change are more concerned and more engaged than people on the right um but the people on the left of the political spectrum we're basically less sort of convinced that if we work together, we can implement adaptation mm, policy. Mm. So this sense of efficacy, it's almost like you can draw a line there and say, um, there's a risk that we, that we ring that alarm bell so loud that people just freeze yeah. or just go, there's nothing we can do. And I mean, that just, in the end, that is not, that's not helping where we want to get to. We've got, no. got to move as fast as we can through, through decarbonizing and through building resilience. So we need to do whatever we need to do to make that happen as fast as we can. And, and yeah. finding that you know, psychological, sociological, cultural um, sort of balance where we can be mobilized and alert, but maintain a response to an an emergency, but an emergency that will last for decades. Right. You know, quite a big yeah. one. I haven't done it before. <laughs> yeah. I see. I, I think yeah, that's really, really interesting thinking about, you know, hope in terms of efficacy and seeing that because that can be so hard to measure and, and takes time to develop something. But I think for me, I think this is where I see the narrative around resilience actions as something really valuable to offer. Because when we're talking about mitigation actions, Right. That's there's so much scientific uncertainty around, you know, what is coming and what it is we need to do to to limit and to guarantee a certain level of warming. That I think if we fixate on those sorts of conversations, that we limit ourselves and the types of hope that we can have. Because if we miss those targets and if we're not able to engage in those sorts of mitigation actions, 
then what have we got to be hopeful about? Whereas I think the conversations around adaptation and resilience are much more flexible to accommodating this scientific uncertainty and the types of actions that we need. And, you know, indeed, like the conversations around resilience is like, well, we know that something bad could be coming. How do we prepare for that? You know, and it's not necessarily having to explicitly define when and where and what and how these impacts will come, but about developing, you know, and this is how you can survive it and be hopeful in the future. I think that's quite a different type of hope from the mitigation. Um, And it's, um, you know, that opens up conversation about, well, what do you want the future to look like rather than this is what the future is going to look like? How are you going to cope? Does that make sense? Yeah, very true. I think it is a very different type of discourse, um, you know, and one of them has... And I think it's easy to become overly critical of this, but you know, there are reasons why we've put these dates and, and deadlines there for ourselves, you know, and, mm. and, and they, 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 they're the things that have happened in, they, they've got justification behind them and they're kind of done in good faith. But I think, yeah, there's, there is, there is a problem with these blockbuster um, big numbers of climate mitigation that we need X by 2050 and we need to do this by 2030 and we need to, be here by this date and if we don't do it we've you know lost lost that lost that opportunity because it's confusing if you don't if you don't pay kind of close attention to what those messages really speak to because you know it's never too late to keep doing as much as we absolutely can every Mm. degree matters in terms of mitigation and and overall global warming but as you say i think it's a, a, a good point um with the with adaptation and resilience there isn't that level of isn't that type of discourse and it is much more about acknowledging um a new sort of decision making space and saying like how do we make decisions knowing what we know now about Mm. broadly this direction of travel you know we kind of we know there's a trajectory here that we're going to be on that we weren't on before what does this mean for the decisions that we make um around infrastructure around housing around you know health regulations and i i mean i think for me like it's back on the mitigation side but there's been a couple of decisions recently where i've have given me personally like a lot of hope um which has been around around the sort of you know not expanding airports basically and and especially the one in Mm. in bristol airport's smaller so it's less significant in terms of emissions but there was you know that decision was made by councillors it was made by local councillors and i read sort of parts of you know the 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 account of the decision making and very explicitly pointed to to climate change and the expansion being incompatible with with you know our understanding of of our of our climate targets and the reality of climate change you know it just doesn't fit anymore you're trying to push something through a hole that's the wrong shape um and that was itself felt like you know councillors are they're fairly, I think they can count in the box of kind of ordinary people. Um, and they, they were basically making, de- making de- decision-making like under a different set of constraints. And, mm. you know, I, I can't wait until, until climate change is, is just baked into those decision-making rule books, basically, so that, so that people who we might unfairly dismiss as being quite bureaucratic actually are just doing a huge amount of positive work at that point by, mm. by following like, the things that we've baked into those bureaucratic um, guidelines. And I think that's got to be there 
as a sort of as as one of the one of the points um on the triangle or more a multi-sided shape more than a triangle but that we <laughs> get to get climate action happening you know like a, a lot of the stuff we do is is very a climate outreach is is about you know how do you sort of make how do you make climate change i guess um not just a set of discrete kind of behind closed doors behaviors you know yeah lifestyle mm-hmm. change matters, but it matters it matters at that more holistic level of people really thinking about and understanding what is this issue what does it mean for my life you know my values the things i care about my family my work um and and i think that's why the the, the it's kind of turned towards citizens assemblies and citizens juries um mm-hmm. is really exciting and, and really positive because it it really opens up this space and i think it touches on what you're saying about different discourses it opens up this space for people to not just say um, well, yeah, you know what, what needs to happen by this date, you know, and a list of a list of technical things that happen around them. But to really get under the bonnet of it and to make sense of this collective challenge that we've got, and yeah, there are loads of technical things that need to happen, and there are loads of government policy levers and economic levers that you know do really just need to be pulled. Um, but but so many of the policies that we now need to enact, the majority of them, involve people either at the bare minimum kind of supporting them and agreeing with them mm-hmm. or more likely actively sort of consenting to things that will impact on their lives, you know, acknowledging and, and being, being treated maturely, I think enough to sort of say, look, if this thing might go up in price or if there's some additional economic or other type of cost here, it's for this reason. And this is what we're doing, you know, from the policy side to sort of reciprocate. Um, I think it's, yeah, we, 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 we have to join up the dots about the different elements of climate change as much as we can. And, and, and I think give, you know, trust, trust people in a sense to be able to, to, to come at it with that kind of complete story. And I think what you see from like Leeds, Oxford, and now the National Citizens Assembly, there's been others as well, is that when you give people, groups of people, a chance to sit down and talk about climate change in its totality, albeit mostly focused on kind of decarbonization rather than resilience mm. so so far um people just come out with really excellently sensible progressive ambitious sort of conclusions and recommendations about what they think should happen next and they also want they also say like crank up the public engagement we want to know more about this <laughs> Dr. Adam Corner, thank you so much um, for speaking to us today and giving us a little bit more climate hope on how the public can engage. Thanks, Lydia. Good to talk. Thanks also to the band Broke for Free, who provide our title music. conversations on climate change adaptation or to access world-leading advice and guidance on climate risk management, visit our website www.acclimatise.uk.com. You can also listen to many more episodes by subscribing to SoundCloud, iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from. That's all from me, so speak to you next time. <laughs>